Hello, and welcome to the Raise Your Voice podcast. Today we're talking with Marty Newmeyer, author of The Brand Flip. The Brand Flip is a whiteboard overview of how customers now run companies and how you can profit from it and create more loyalty with your customers. Marty's also written two of my favorite books, The Brand Gap and Zag. So Marty, you've, you've also written two of my favorite books, The Brand Gap and Zag. Thank and, you. And the, the first two books, actually, that I wrote. Yes, and I've studied those uh, quite thoroughly. And I noted in this book, you said you're really delighted when people write notes in your books and they highlight. And all of my copies of your books, except for this one, this one I'm going to go back through again and highlight it, but are, are pretty heavily <laughs> marked up. Fabulous. Yeah. So what triggered this book? What led you to writing Brand Slip? Well, up to this point, I had um, uh, five books out. And <clears throat> the first one was uh, The Brand Gap, which did unexpectedly well. And, um, I mean, that book, um, I published the book, and it took off pretty quickly. But I also put up... Um, uh, well, I, I built a slideshow of about, I, I don't know, 160 slides, something like that, to use in my workshops. And someone took that and stuck that, uh, you know, uploaded that to Slide SlideShare, which I'd never heard of, uh, uh, you know, sort of secretly did that. And then two years later, I, I, I finally looked online <laughs> to see what it was, and there was like 2,000 requests for talks and workshops and all kinds of stuff that I had completely ignored because I didn't even know what it was. And uh, by now, that slideshow has been seen o- uh, over 10 million times. So it's, you know, it, it's, the ideas have been passed around a lot over the last 12 years, and I just feel like um, a lot has changed in 12 years. And uh, rather than just update that book, I thought I would add to it with a sequel, and so that's what the 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 brand flip is. So, are you this idea of giving away ideas? Are, are you good with that? I, I haven't looked to see if you've given away any any slideshows on brand flip. I have not. I don't know if I'm going to because uh, I think that slideshare thing worked for me because I was one of the first uh, slideshows up on it, and it just kept getting hits to it and uh, downloads, and it kept it number one for a long time, so pe- a lot of people saw it. Later, I put on uh, Zag. You can go there and see Zag, and it's an even better slideshow, in my opinion, but uh, far fewer uh, visitors to that one. It's just, you know, it's timing and, and how fame works and all that kind of stuff, so I think if I did the brand flip, I, you know, pe- some people would see it, but I'm not sure if it's uh, if it's worth it, so... But anyway, I give I give the ideas away in many ways, including on our website, the Liquid Agency website, uh, in steal steal this idea. So anything that's uh, can be turned into a, a a little series of slides or a tool that you can use, I tend to put that up on our site and just give it away. Or you can just buy the book; it's in there. Yeah, and I I've referred people to the steal this idea site, and I refer to that myself quite often because I, I find a lot of value in it. Uh, I'm sure you'll, you have a lot of people who say they're students of your thinking, and I'm certainly one of those. Uh, and oh, I'm, not a, I'm you know, 
in, in some of my reading lately, you know, it's it's really made, been made clear that our any of our work is is a, a synthesis of what we've learned before until we finally start to find our own voice, and then um, sure, start. everybody you know recasts everything they see around them in their own way, and um, so nothing's really original, um, but it often can have a a personal point of view that's that's interesting. So to, to say that I own any of these ideas would be kind of silly. Mm. So I just I want to just touch on some of the what I what I found to be the key points. I made a couple of pages of notes in my journal as I read through. Um, one of the things you talk about is empowering customers, and why why is empowering customers more important than ever? Uh, well, there, there's ten things in the book that I, ten new realities that I made notes of. They're in, interconnected realities that 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 require us to do to think about it this way. The first one is that uh, power has shifted from companies to customers because of technology. The second, the second one is that people are not so much focused on products but meaning, and they use that meaning. Um, to build their identities. Um, they hate being sold, but they love to buy. Uh, interestingly, they, they tend to buy in tribes. They tend to buy what their friends buy because it makes them feel safe and successful. And so now the battle is no longer between companies but tribes. And um, the company with the strongest tribe wins, usually. Uh, and these tribes are connected through technology and so brands need to flow through multiple technologies and across platforms, and therefore the most successful brands are not static but but fluid. So with, when you consider these ten changes, you realize that um, it's really not about the company and the products as much as the customer. Um, and so as I was researching the book, I came across a well, it's pretty famous actually. I came across it again, but a, a quote from. Uh, Peter Drucker, the famous uh, management guru, he said, a business has only one valid purpose, to create a customer. And so that really got me thinking about this book, How Do You Create a Customer? And as a designer, I always think if you, um, you know, try to create it, create everything without applying the principles of design, it's usually a mess. So actually what we want to do is design a customer and you know, I don't mean that in some sort of uh, Frankenstein way or Big Brother way, but I think we, what we need to do is design a space uh, that 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 the the best customers can inhabit. They see themselves in that space, and they they inhabit that space. Then they uh, tell fr- uh, like-minded friends and so forth, and they build the tribe out from there. So to make that really work, you have to uh, you have to give customers more than just product satisfaction. I mean, you have to sort of bring it up from satisfaction to delight to engagement and finally to empowerment. And empowered customers are the ones you want. Right, right. So part of that, what what came across to me was that you've got this idea of empathy in there, that mm-hmm. in order to empower them, you need to understand them, you need to feel like they feel. So let me, let me run uh, one of my Angelos quotes by which I'm sure you've heard. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's good. And, that's true. And I, I don't know if you, you've ever, you know, considered that. I tell people that's one of the most powerful design and marketing quotes ever written. Right. So if we apply, apply that to, to branding, um, it's all about addressing emotion uh, deeply and not just talking at people, which is, um, for one thing, if you're talking at people, if it's a one-way conversation, as in traditional advertising, you know, people are just um, going to discount that because you have no credibility with them. You have a, a vested interest in selling something, so they're not going to listen to that. But if you can get them to feel a certain way um, that helps build the brand, then then you're in business. And I think uh, generally it's a kinder way to do business. It is, because it, it makes the customer part of your story. And that's that's... One of the it, makes the, it makes your customer the hero of your story. I would go that far. True. So, you know, customers True. don't want to read stories. They don't want to read your stories. They want to make their own stories up about you and, and cast themselves as the central figure in it. So uh, the question now is, how do you do that the best way possible? And um, so, yeah, you were going to say... You know, say you, you you talk and when you talk about what's the best way possible, one of the um, one of one of the parts of the book where you talk about the brand uh, commitment matrix. Um, I, I believe I'm using the right term is when you look at all the touch points, and that's that's a word I use as well. Is you know what are the touch points? Where are the where are the places that you interact with your customers and that they find meaning in interacting with you? And I, and I love how you you broke that into the shallow and deep and general and personal. Um, it, it made me look at our my own company a completely different way when I saw that. Like, huh? Mm. I spend I spend too much time in the shallow and general. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not not in that, but I but even some of the things. So, what about you know thought leadership, blogging? Do you think that do you think that's in the personal and deep or the general and deep area? Uh, blogging can be pretty personal, I think, because if it's you really expressing your innermost thoughts to one reader at a time, um, and, it's, and it's not broadcast to everybody, right, then it's pretty personal, and it can be fairly deep, too. So, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the great opportunities in marketing is this thought leadership piece where the leader of a of a brand or a company uh, can directly address customers. And it doesn't necessarily scale into something large, but for for um, reaching your core tribe, it's, uh, it's unparalleled, really. I think it's an amazing um, medium, let's say. Sure. And in, in, in my mind, it's, it's a matter of you have to keep that tribe at the forefront of your mind and either whether it's the whole tribe or even almost down to a specific individual in that tribe who represents them and you write mm-hmm. for them as if you're Yeah, happy. I mean you should have sort of a an idea of who your ideal customer is, not every customer, just the one the most ideal one. Uh and always put your uh you know, yourself in their shoes uh and think what's the next thing I can do to empower this person? What do they need from me? How can I help? Um, 
help them in a way that makes me indispensable to their lives. Yes, that's, a, that's an excellent way to put that. So um, talk to me a little bit about your concept of dividing versus multiplying. I thought that was a really interesting insight. Yeah, well, it, it sort of goes back to um, what's what's changed about branding. So it used to be that um, the, the old model of branding was pretty simple. Um, um, the company creates a brand, and in the old model, the brand was really a name and a logo and uh, maybe a look and feel and some advertising to support it. That was what they considered a brand in those days. And then the brand, all that stuff, attracts customers, and then the customers buy the products to sustain the company. Pretty simple. Um, and that's sort of been flipped upside down. The same elements are there, but today the company creates customers, you know, going back to Peter Drucker, create a customer. The company creates customers through building a great product and introducing it to a core group of people. Those customers build the brand by telling their friends and, and, and categorizing it for their friends. This is this kind of company, and these are the stories I like to tell about it. And then the brand sustains the company. So what's better about that is that... Um, uh, brands tend to last longer than customers. They last years and years and years, so customers may come and go, but the brand that they built lasts. It stays there. It lingers. And so you have this good long-term uh, flywheel effect of the brand supporting the company for a long time. I think about um, how Apple did that. Uh, in the early days, they had this passionate group of followers uh, when Steve Jobs started the company. And then even when he left, the brand sustained the company. The people were loyal to Apple just because of the founding ideas of Apple. And then when he came back into the company, he had this standing army that he could, uh, that he could manage. Um, so that was a really good demonstration of that. So if you have that, if that's what's changed, that customers now create brands, um, now I forget the, the question. What did you ask? Oh, we're talking about dividing versus multiplying. Okay. Right, right, right. Okay, so if 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 the idea is to build this core audience uh, and they and, and find these core customers and they build the brand, then you have to look at things a little differently than traditional marketing. So traditional marketing um, kind of looked at things uh, as – market segmentation you you know if you're going to start a business you look at the total market and you calculate the value of that market you know it's so many billion dollars a year uh, or whatever it is and then you uh, divide the audience up by demographics or psychographics or um, regions or however you want to do it so that you can target the ones you think you can win over so it's like you have this um, this this market that already exists, and then you pick part of it or parts of it, and you segment those by by um, different features in the products or different messages to different groups of people, different campaigns, and so forth. And that works really well as long as the market already exists. But in a time of extreme change like we're in now, um, a lot of the best markets have yet to be created. Um, so. A better way to do that is to, um, you know, find a niche that you think is going to grow, that you can grow, 
and then find your core customers and give them the tools they need to start building the brand and grow it out from there. So instead of divide and conquer, which is what market segmentation does, you know, keep all those different groups apart from each other so they don't know what we're saying to each of them, um, it's multiply and conquer where you say the same thing to your core group and they help you multiply the audience and it grows exponentially if you're if you're lucky. So that's yeah. that's what I meant by that. Yeah. No, that that for me was again causing me to, to reframe the way I'm looking at some things with with some with some new initiatives I'm doing at my company and how that could affect some of our, our, our non profit sector clients who then want to reach their donors and constituents more effectively and this idea of you know, marketing automation makes it really easy to segment and at the same time personalize some nurturing. Um, you create some nurturing streams, but if, if if you take that and flip it and make it that it's more about multiplying than segmenting, it yeah, creates... it's, it's about building a tribe from from something very small or from nothing, right? So the the question to ask isn't how big is the market because there may not be a market, or how big is the audience? It's you and what army? I mean, how are you? Who's going to help you build this brand? And so you have to build your army. You have to build your community of of uh, your brand cohort, uh, who's going to help you do this? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really interested in, in revisiting that that section of the book as well, just so I can so I can have a, a you know a really clear idea of of, of that. And, and I appreciate hearing you talk it through because it, it's it makes a great companion for reading as, as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the thing about a tribe is, you know, the way I, I'm using the term um, as a brand tribe, it's a group of people with similar interests who share information. Um, and if you find that you're actually having to talk with two different groups that don't share information, right, then um, you're really, you, you have two tribes, and therefore you should have two brands. You shouldn't have the same brand addressing two audiences because, that's the rule, one, one brand per audience or one, one brand per tribe. Um, you can grow the tribe and you can make it um, sort of multifaceted, but if you find yourself selling things to people who never talk to each other or share information, then you're really um, undermining uh, part of your brand. You need to you know, start another brand, just step up to the plate and start another brand with a, with a different tribe. Yeah. And that, and. Uh, that can be well. That can be expensive. That can be time-consuming, and yeah. But it's the only thing that really works in the long run. So right, you just have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I understand. I can say I understand that completely because I had my former company and my new company, Aspire, and I was I was splitting my time and having to speak two different languages to two separate audiences, and just decided, okay, it's time to not. Maintain two two brands and just move into one. Yeah, it's inefficient. Um, it, it splits your passion. You know, if, mm-hmm. if if you have a passion driven company like the best ones usually are, um, it, it's just it's it's um, really difficult to um, split your mind in two. And that's but that's basically what companies do. They split into different divisions with different customers, trying to. Uh, leverage, as the word is most people use, leverage the same brand. In other words, not spend money creating a, a whole new uh, brand. But I think it's 
it's uh, it makes you vulnerable to companies that are more focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and focus is what I find so many times people are lacking, and mm-hmm. they and when they're not focused, you can tell when they're not focused because they have no clarity. Yeah, and, and oftentimes that goes back to they don't quite understand what their purpose is, which you referenced yeah. several times. Yeah, I think purpose is important. You have to have you have to know why you're doing this beyond making money. You know, if if you weren't making money or if the business was doing badly or the organization were doing badly, would you keep going? That's always a good um you know, or if you won the lottery, uh would you come back to work the next day? Oh, if the yeah. answer is no, you should go someplace else and do something you really love because that passion is going to sustain you. It's going to drive you forward. Passion is kind of you know, it's better than time management. Passion management is is what you really want to do, is because passion is is uh, can stretch forever. Time cannot. There's only so many hours in the day. But passion is very flexible. So you need passion. Then you need to focus that passion in a competitive way. And um, then you then you um, figure out what makes you the only. You know, we're the only group that does something that's valuable. Um, and then you just keep building your touch points to, and and uh, products and and uh, communications to emphasize that and to drive it forward. And then you'll start to see customers telling stories about you. And if you pay attention to what they're saying, you can start to hear your future. You know, you can you'll uh, there's always customers who will be ahead of you. They'll be out there in front suggesting things that you should do next. Um, and once you identify those people, you kind of have a sketch of what your future is going to look like. You can see what people are already going to want, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're part of your decision-making process, which is something that we didn't have before because customers and leaders were cut off from each other. Yes. So really the, listening and engaging needs to be top-down or bottom up however it needs to be both ways yeah leadership model is yeah and it's just it depends on your leadership model and granted there are so many companies that are still top down and the the servant led type companies who are really purpose driven and are and passion uh driven they lead in a sense from the bottom up because they're because of the empowerment that happens within and then it's about fine you know it's about um what my mother told me when I was a teenager, I, she said, well, do you ever feel like being a leader of something? And I, because I, at the time I was a leader of nothing, you know. <laughs> I, said, well, you know I, I think I, I feel like I can do it in some way. I just haven't figured it out. I don't know how to do it. She goes, well, you just find a parade and get in front of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what this allows you to do. Social media is you find the parade, you watch it forming up, and you go out and get in front of it, and you lead it where it wants to go. But maybe didn't know, you know, exactly how to do it. So you organize people and you get them to go where they already wanted to go. Love that. I wrote that down here. <laughs> That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our parents, our, our parents tend to pass wisdom on. It sticks with, that with us and informs our work even even today. Yeah. Um, Usually, right. and sometimes they give you very bad ideas too. But you know, you you need you know. It's funny the the good ones are the ones you usually reject. When you're young, and later you realize, boy, that was smart. True, very true. 
So one last question. Well, no, let me say two last questions for you. Um, okay. One is, you wrote the success of design is not in how much you spend, but how you spend it. Mm. And that is a discussion I have pretty much every week with mm. people. And um, Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of companies just think of design and brand-related activities, product-related activities as a checklist. We have to do this, this, this. Now we figure out how much that costs. We check it off. We write the checks to everybody, and we've done our job. Instead of thinking about what outcome you want, which is really somewhat unrelated to the amount of money you spend. Mm-hmm. And you reference too that there's a there's a clear difference in the companies who invest in design in terms of mm. their performance financially mm. and those that don't. Yeah, they tend to do much better uh, over the long haul, and um, it's sort of stunning the, nu- the numbers that you get. Design-focused companies are, you know, may- maybe their profits are like 25% higher on average, something like that, depending on the industry. Um so it's hard to know exactly how that works because it may be that they're just uh, on the cutting edge everywhere in their business, not just in design. But I tend to think that they're just they're really looking out for their customers when they spend money on design. It's like how can we really, you know, excite them, delight them, and once you start doing that, you're definitely on the right track. Um, you're starting to flip your brand, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and bring it into the 21st century. It's all about what happens on the customer end of it, and you have to work backwards from there. Instead of thinking about how can we do this cheaply or what's the most efficient way to do that, that's really old school, and it comes from a manufacturing mindset of everything has to be cheaper, right? Mm-hmm. So, But Apple never says that. You know, I mean, their products cost twice as much as they should, uh, given that they had competitors doing Apple-like products for half half the price, better products, actually, from a functional standpoint. But they weren't offering the emotional benefits and the division of Apple, and so they failed, even at half the price. Right. Well, and, if, and if you think about that, the design being the interface between product or service and the buyer, the consumer, mm-hmm. the customer, mm-hmm. then... It doesn't make sense that that a company would not be investing in design at at a significant level to make sure that that experience, whether it be a product or a service, creates the emotional connection that they want with the customer. Yeah, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say investing because that sounds like you spend more, you get more, which is true mm-hmm. when you're doing it right. Uh, but most people, I mean, if, I think it's just if you um, commit yourself to um, uh, being a designful company, you know, using design in every part of your company, you'll be more innovative. Uh, you'll spend less money for greater results. You'll delight your customers more. All the stuff comes with it um, if you, you know, use design in every possible way, from not just posters and toasters, you know, graphic mm-hmm. design and and products, but also your systems, your relationships with customers, your thought leadership your internal operations, everything in business can be designed. It can be, you can look at it in a, uh, so use your imagination to improve every part of it. And um, 
companies who do that um, just do better. Their profit margins are significantly better. Yeah, yeah. I, I call that idea of mission-driven design. So if you, you've got a specific mission you're wanting to accomplish, then mm. you're designing a process. You're, everything you're doing has to be designed to achieve that. Yeah, it's running a company or an organization purposefully, um, you know, from the very core of it, which is this passion that's made you do this kind of work in the, the beginning, all the way out to how do we become the no-brainer choice for our customers, our you know, our audience. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, thank you. So I, I appreciate all your insights, and I really encourage you know, both if, you, if you're a for-profit company or even a nonprofit to to understand how your customers want you to engage them. That brand flip is a is a fabulous read, and it's you're right. It only takes a couple hours, but it, if you really want to dive into it, I would say you need to invest another four or five to to really take your time and go through all the sections. So I have one last question, and this is just based on um, some things people have shared with me, but I, I'm just wondering, do you think the word brand is overused or misused? Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it mostly suffers from its older um, definition, which was that a brand is a logo or it's a package of things that's just all about the surface of a company, and um, that has to change. It has changed, and so, but you still, you know, I still have clients who say they'll look at a, say, a package design, you know, and they'll say to the designer, uh, "Can we make the brand a little bigger on that package?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I feel like saying, "No, um, <laughs> we can make the logo bigger." If that's going to do any good, but if you want to make the brand bigger, that takes a, uh, quite a commitment to uh, a lot of different things. So you know, a brand is is not a logo. It's uh, it's a gut feeling that that customers have about your company or your product or your service, and that gut feeling is what you're trying to um, have a little bit of control over or influence. Let's say you cannot ever control it, which is part of the flip: is that customers control your brand. You only give them the raw materials that they can build stories out of and experiences out of. Yeah, and and I qu- I quote you all the time when I tell people, brand's not what you think it is; it's what your customers think it is. And and you know, and I and that when you said that, it reminded me of that illustration. I think it was in the brand gap of the the pipe, and it was did it say or no? It was the Nike swoosh and said, "This is not a brand in French." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The Rene Magritte painting. This yeah. is not a. This is not a pipe. And, right. And so the 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 subtle joke in it is, it's a painting of a pipe. So, you know, a brand is not uh, a logo is not a brand. It's a symbol for a brand. So that's the analogy. Exactly. Yes, and a symbol is an excellent way to put it. That I think really frames that. Yeah. And and you and you you step through the definition of brand very well in Brand Flip and. Um, that's that's another section I want to go back and really review again so that I'm using the right language when I talk. So Good. thank yeah. you. For- I think it pays to be really precise about your you know brand and and because it helps you think about it in a different way. And if you think about it as a reputation instead of a set of you know you know uh, touch points, um, then it puts you in the right frame of mind to understand it and to to, to manage it. 
Right, because touch points end up, those are pretty much tactics. and Yeah, well, those experiences are the building blocks of the brand. Um, mm-hmm. You can't control an experience because it's not your experience, it's your customer's experience, but you can um, get it in the frame where it w- works for people, right? So you have a little control over it. The more control you can get, the better, but don't ever kid yourself that you're totally in control of your customers. You you aren't, and that's part of the flip is that they have their own lives, and um, as long as um, you're important to them, they will pay you back um, with interest. Mm, excellent way to put that. Well, thanks for your time. I, I greatly appreciate it. I know how busy you are, and I think you're just back from your book promotion tour um, I'm still in the middle of it. You sort of go out in these forays, and um, you know, but by the end of this uh, fall season, I think it, that part will be done, and it'll just be a few years of doing the workshops and uh, talks and so forth. I mean, I've, I've been talking about the brand gap for 12 years now, so it never ends. You know, there's always mm-hmm. someone who needs to hear how this works. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, many years talking about the brand flip and um, showing people how to use the the matrix and so forth. Great. Well, that that gives me hope because I'm still, I'm, I'm in year two and I'm starting to actually get more speaking opportunities, and on, on my book and. Yeah. Good. That, well, it takes ten, ten years. Um, if your book is successful, <laughs> you'll think you know you'll, it'll feel successful in the beginning. I mean, you'll you know people will start asking you to talk about it and so forth, but it doesn't really pick up for about 10 years when everybody finally discovers it. That's 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 just my experience with the brand gap. I, I remember after two years of giving workshops uh, with my company, the other, my staff was saying, you know, we got to go on to something else. People are just getting tired of this brand gap thing. You just can't keep milking this same thing. And I was skeptical of that, and now it's sort of proved that, no, there's more people interested in it now than there were 10 years ago. So, no, it doesn't go away. If, if, the, if the ideas are good and fairly timeless it takes that long for the rest of the world to pick up on it Mm. um so yeah just um you know just you have to realize that um it's going to be a while but that's a good thing isn't it i mean it gives you gives your book a long uh you know long life right and and for me it's 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 impetus to, to be able to sell all the copies i had printed so i was like yeah yeah well yeah well, you never know, right? I mean, I published Critique Magazine, um, and the way printing works is you don't want to print just a few. It costs too much. You want to print a lot, and then you just really make sure that you sell all those. And so we were printing this deluxe magazine, I mean, the finest printing money could buy, uh, and it cost $18 a copy for people to buy it in the store. Enormous amount of money. Um, but we couldn't sell all of them, so we had, like, they were just piling up, and uh, we could sell about... We had to sell about 10,000 copies per issue, but because it's a magazine, they just basically sat around because no one wanted an old magazine as if the old ones were no longer valid. But that's the mindset around magazines. Books, however, can last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, Mm -hmm. unless they're really tied to the present, you know, but if they're timeless, um, they can go for a long time. Sure. Well, I do really appreciate your time. this is, well, thanks so much, Brian. It's uh, great to talk to you. Yeah, and you too. And I remember I, I was at one of your Brand Gap workshops up in New York. I don't know if you remember. 
Um, uh, that was a while ago, so no, I don't. Yeah. Really. It was it was Rochester. It was probably 15 years ago. Oh, okay, was, Rochester. Yeah, yeah, right. that was fun. Yeah, yeah I, I remember you. Yeah, yeah. I, I drove there, and <laughs> um, yeah, that's and and I really, I mean, I I keep your books around. And I study them, and I think I think there's a gap between Zag and Brand Flip where I don't have the other ones, but. Um, well, if you really want, uh, and this goes for your listeners too, if you want to challenge yourself to a book that's not like these, not the really simple one, but has is packed with uh, ideas that have not really been um, exploited, if you're looking for what the future is going to look like, uh, particularly the future of education, but also of business, uh, pick up Meta Skills. Meta Skills is my favorite book, but it's not for everyone. It's for people who. Um, like to think about what they're reading and aren't just looking for tips, but are looking for really basic um, insight into to what the future could look like. You've been listening to the Raise Your Voice podcast with Brian Soy. Our conversation today was with Marty Newmeyer, author of The Brand Flip. To hear more conversations like this, visit aspire.com, that's A-E-S-P-I-R-E.com, or search for the Raise Your Voice podcast on iTunes.